This episode is brought to you by Dietz and Watson. Uh, Molly, it's time we have the talk about hot dogs. Oh, oh, okay. Well, hey, (laughs) I'm looking for a hot dog that's the real deal, Matthew. Like a classic hot dog that like when you think of like the platonic ideal of a hot dog, Mm -hmm. I recommend Dietz and Watson's Dietz Dogs. Ah, well, I've heard that they're handcrafted and made using only Dietz and Watson premium meat. I can vouch for this because Dietz and Watson sent us a big box of hot dogs and other delights. And wife of the show, Lori, and I had them for dinner last night. We had uh, the classic beef Dietz dogs with uh, toasted buns with sauerkraut and pickled jalapenos and Dietz and Watson ballpark style yellow mustard. Do you think you'd recommend Dietz and Watson hot dogs for fried rice? Oh, yeah. Fried rice with some sliced hot dogs. I'm going to be doing that soon. Wife of the show, Lori, is going to be making the hot dog flour buns from Christina Cho's cookbook, Mooncakes and Milk Bread. Very excited for this. Mm, And I'm especially pleased because Dietz and Watson does things the right way. So this means like no additives, no fillers, no artificial flavors, no cutting corners. You can feel good about this stuff. Dietz and Watson. It's a family thing since 1939. Shop now at Dietz slash the right way. That's Dietz, D-I-E-T-Z, and Watson.com slash the right way. I'm Molly. And I'm Matthew. And this is Spilled Milk, the show where we cook something delicious, eat it all, and we're back in our closets again. Oh, yeah, and that's because we have a special guest today. We do. Uh, but today's episode is about chili oil. Should we start by starting the way we always start, which is starting on down memory lane? Yes. So, Did uh, I say start enough times that it doesn't starting, seem like a word anymore? I'm going to start by saying that my, my start in the world of chili oil, here's how it started. Are you ready for me to start? Uh, yeah, I th- you, yeah, you can go ahead and start. Okay. <laughs> I'm pretty sure that my first encounter with chili oil as like a concept was that it was, it's always, uh, uh, how about I just start? Okay, yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah, we can start? start, start, anytime you want to start. <laughs> okay. Uh, so I'm pretty sure my first encounter with chili oil as a concept was that it was that condiment that lived on the table in Vietnamese restaurants in sure. like a, yeah. like a clear plastic jar with a metal lid that the spoon could poke through. Yeah, or would there be like a little divot for the spoon, like in the lip of the of the jar, or like uh, yes. this? Yeah, 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 yeah. But I never tasted it because I was frightened of sure. it. And I think that that it took me actually into uh, nearly into my thirties to discover the pleasure that is eating chili oil, not just looking at it. <laughs> yeah, although um, it is a very attractive condiment. It is. Uh, around the time that we were opening Delancey, Brandon and I. We were really inspired by the pizza at Ken's Artisan Pizza in Portland. I think that Ken's makes its own chili oil. I'm pretty sure. I think you're right. Yeah. You know, it's probably just olive oil and chili flakes, I'm guessing. Anyway, but I remember eating that chili oil drizzled on Ken's Artisan Pizza, and it was, the way that it warmed my mouth was Mm -hmm. something that I had never encountered before in spicing. And and so we made that chili oil from the, the, you know, the very simplest chili oil that I can think of. So olive oil with chili flakes warmed in it for a little bit. We made that from the very earliest days of Delancey. Yeah, and I, I remember having that on stuff at Delancey, and it was great. I can picture like a, a saucepan of, of olive oil and chili flakes just sitting just inside yes. the, the pizza oven hearth. Uh, 
Yeah, back in the old days. Uh, what about you, Matthew? So I wasn't sure how much chili oil memory lane I had beyond like the last few years when I've been making it regularly. But then I remembered that for some reason, like when I was growing up, like uh, and the same is true today, my dad loves spicy food and my mom doesn't. And so like when you have a household with a spicy food person and a non-spicy food person, obviously you're going to have hot sauces and spicy condiments, right? Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. I remember... Like that when I when we made chili and I wanted to like spice up my chili, like I would put in Chinese chili oil, like like commercial, like pre-made Chinese chili oil as as a hot sauce. And I don't know like why we had that specifically rather than like a Tabasco style sauce, which we probably also had. Yeah. Or like yeah, yeah. why why my parents suggested that as as like a way to spice up my chili, but I did love it. How would you the flavor, gosh, I'm trying to picture the flavor of that in chili, in like a chili powder flavored food. Well, it's, I think there's a lot of overlap because as we're definitely going to get into, like for like Chinese style chili oils, like the flavor of toasted dried chilies is really the dominant sensation. Yes. Um, ooh, dominant sensation. Sounds oh, like yeah. a band. Oh, God, I <laughs> love my sensations to be dominant. <laughs> Me too. <laughs> But uh, so and and that's also true of of like, you know, chili, chili con carne that uh, that it's based on like toasted dried chilies. So I think it went really well. What is chili oil? Is it always made from dried chilies? What what is this stuff? Okay, that's a good question, Molly. I'm going to have to shuffle my papers a bit in order to answer. (laughs) Uh, So chili oil, not always, but almost always has a dried chili component. I think of it as primarily being dried chilies infused in hot oil. Uh, okay. So if you're familiar with Lao Gama uh, or Fly by Jing Chili Crisp, which we've like, you know, I think everybody loves this stuff. That is a type of chili oil that includes fried garlic and soybeans for texture. But like mm-hmm. the most basic chili oil, you can use like just dried chilies and any kind of oil that can take a moderately high heat. Yes. Yes. Um, okay. So that could be vegetable oil, peanut oil, avocado oil, even even olive oil. And you leave the the chili sediment, like the solids, in the oil. And part of what makes this oil such a versatile condiment uh, is that you can choose how much of the chili sediment you actually use when you scoop it out, right? Yes, that's exactly right. I have seen, like, the chili oil that was in our cabinet as a, when I was a kid and I would put in my chili, like, that mm-hmm. had all of the solids filtered out. Oh, but, like, okay. I definitely, like, the way you'll see it, like, uh, you know, on the table at, at a Vietnamese or Chinese restaurant and the way that I keep it at home, like it's pretty much like, you know, half oil and half sediment. And so, yeah, like the sediment is really tasty. You know, you choose how much you want to spoon up. When you make chili oil at home, as I know you do and, and I do as well, what types of chilies do you use? Okay, so I use a uh, like a roasted ground chili blend that I buy from uh, Mala Market, which uh, we can mm-hmm. link to it in the show notes. And I think it is really good stuff. On the other hand, any medium to spicy dried red chili is going to work really well. Like, so if you have you know, like chiles de arbol, those will work great. Just like, you know, grind them up or mortar and pestle them first. Um, you know, you can make it with like, you know, uh, Italian style crushed red chilies. That will be delicious. Like, you mm-hmm. know, you're going you're, you're going for like a mix of color and flavor. There are some chili uh, mixtures that you will get like the color from like uh, gochugaru gives tons of color 
color and very little heat usually unless you buy the spicy one. Um, you know, like Thai ch- chilies will give like less color but lots of heat. And But you're, what you really are going for is that toasted flavor and that's all about like getting the oil hot enough before you pour it over the chilies. Ah. Do you always heat the oil and then pour it over the chilies? I always or heat do you the oil and then warm pour- them together? If you warm them together, it's just too easy to burn the chilies. Like it's not that you can't do it, but like you want to expose the chilies to like a lot of, you know, of heat, like a high temperature so that you get that toasty flavor, but without Mm -hmm. taking like, you know, taking them over into burnt. And the best way to do that is to put them in a heat proof bowl and get your oil up to like the 300 or 350 and then pour it over. Okay, that's 300 or 350 Fahrenheit. Fahrenheit. Okay, I think I usually do 300. Hold on. I want to go back to chili crisp for just a second. Yeah, because I think that these days, I mean, chili crisp is so trendy. I want to talk a little bit more about it. I mean, you talked about how it's a type of chili oil that includes like some texture components like fried garlic or soybeans. What is it sometimes that makes, uh, like I'm thinking of Flyby Jing in particular, Mm -hmm. it has a really like savory flavor that lingers in a different way from when I have made, for instance, a basic chili oil using like a Szechuanese chili blend. What's going on in there? I think that's probably toasted soybeans because like they're going to, they're going to contribute contribute umami that the that the chilies okay. alone don't have. Okay. So do you ever add other things to your chili oil like garlic? I mean, I know garlic and ginger are big things. Do you ever do you ever add stuff? Yeah, I will usually like smash a couple of ginger coins and uh and just kind of toss that in and they're not meant to be to be like eaten along with the with the sediment but are just like kind of sit in there for flavor and they look kind of cool mm-hmm. like most of the stuff I do in the kitchen is to look cool totally I think we all know that about like you've you, seen my Matthew. cooking hat right I've also seen your cooking shoes that's which, that, yeah these uh, <laughs> these are the coolest shoes like I don't I don't like you know I'm afraid I'm gonna like call, like distort the market and like cause further supply chain issues if I talk too much in detail about my cooking yeah. shoes they you know, are that's a good. pair of Birkenstocks <laughs> that are probably like 20 years old. You know, they are to Birkenstocks what distressed jeans are to like regular jeans. I think that there's there's going to be an explosion after this episode in the market <laughs> for distressed cooking Birkenstocks. Uh-huh. Like Birkenstocks that are extremely worn down and and, and have your your foot juice in them. That's true. I am going to have to to start harvesting my foot juice um, to be used in the production process. That's so uh, important. Of distressed Birkenstocks. Yeah, because yeah, that's what everybody's looking for in shoes. They're looking for their shoes to already be worn down I, and I, filled with germs. I don't know anything about shoes, but I know like people get really into <laughs> shoes. I bet distressed sneakers are a thing, right? I, but not the footbed. No, and probably not the footbed. <laughs> when I think of your cooking shoes, I think of uh, absolutely destroyed footbed. Yeah, also my kitchen is like like old linoleum that's starting to like have holes worn in it, and it really matches the shoes. <laughs> It does. It does. You know, I'm noticing we haven't said the word start in a while. <laughs> what? Well, we should start. Uh, we should start. 
hold on. Okay. But but back to uh, cooking styles. Yeah. So, of course, as you were saying, you sometimes add some slices of, of like smashed garlic just for style. Smashed ginger, usually. Oh, sorry. Ginger. Sorry. Is there any danger in leaving the ginger in there for a while? How long can you let this stuff sit around? That's Does a good question. Does it change over time? I, like, I mean, first of all, like, it's not very good right after you make it, partly, partly because it's like still like 275 degrees and will burn your face. <laughs> but like, even after it cools to room temperature, it really needs to like sit and meld for overnight, like before it's at its best. I don't find that it changes much more noticeably after that. Like we've said before, I am the kind of person who has probably unfounded fears about botulism and infused oils. So I will let it go in the fridge for like two to three months and try and use it up. I try and like make a quantity that I can use up during that time. Hold on. Wait, do you feel like two to three months is a conservative amount of time if you're thinking about like botulism? I don't know. Like, do I? This is not based on science at all. This is this is based on superstition. I have recently, so wait, have I told you that my spouse, Ash's dad, is from South Korea? Does anybody and when get Ash, botulism? I feel like we well, would hear about it. Hold on. I have like so many conflicting thoughts about food poisoning because yeah, as me someone too, who, yeah. like, I mean, I used to have a food handler's permit, right? Because I worked in a restaurant. Yeah. And they drive into your head that, like, you, you know, the, the danger zone, right? Oh, I feel, anything yeah, that, I, I definitely believe in the danger zone. Anything that's between... And the highway there, too. Like, 40 or 41 degrees and 140 yeah. degrees. That's the danger zone where you don't want food to hang out for too long because of foot juice. Um, <laughs> no, no, because of... Because of because of distress. Yes, yes. Um, anyway, but okay, so my spouse grew up in a household where they would cook an, a rice cooker full of rice and then leave it on the counter, I think with the warm setting on, for days and days and days and just come along and scoop some out and eat it. So presumably, like, I can't imagine that it was, like, crazy hot. I don't know how hot the warm I think feature. the warm setting is designed to be above the danger zone boundary. Really? Yeah. But do you think even, like, the rice that's on top, the top level? Well, okay, I'm not sure, but... Here's what I do know. If you leave rice at room temperature, like especially like in a moist environment for a few days, it will get moldy as fuck. So yes. like there is like there was at least enough heat to to ward off okay. to kill moldy spores. Interesting. My friend Hannah, she also does this and she's never gotten sick either. So I'm like, what's up with all the food safety stuff I, mean, I, I had don't to think, learn? I don't think rice like after a couple days in the rice cooker on the warm setting is at it best but i don't think my spouse cares okay i think they're down with rice and all of sickness they're down with distressed rice yeah i i mean a distressed right like sounds like dirty rice which is great which is delicious Um, so so let's get down with distressed rice i really think my hypothesis is that a rice cooker will keep the whole contents above the danger zone boundary if you leave it on warm that's my theory. Okay. Okay. All right. But back to chili But back oil. to botulism. Like back to I mean, botulism. botulism. Like only like is only happens in like anaerobic conditions. Yeah. Another thing you can do is just like keep your whole house at a temperature of below forty degrees, um, <laughs> or above one or above one hundred and forty. Yeah. <laughs> I learned about botulism as a kid when we had like a unit in science about poisons, and I've been scared of it ever since, and it's never come up. That's how I feel about syphilis. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. 
<laughs> anyway, so uh, we, we've got our guest joining us in just a minute, but I want to talk a little bit about how we use chili oil in our kitchens uh, before we sort of shift over to talk with our guest, Bryant Terry. Yeah. Okay. So you sent me home once with some of that Sichuanese chili blend from Mala Market. Yeah. Uh, and I made that chili oil, which I have eaten on Juk, which was delicious. Mm-hmm. I'm a big fan of Chili Crisp. My entire household eats quite yep. a bit of Chili Crisp. I use it in yakisoba, um, in any number of stir fries. Lately, I've been making a lot of stir fried cabbage because, you know, t- tis the season for uh, cabbage in great abundance. Yeah, stir fried cabbage uh, cooked in some really hot peanut oil and then seasoned with soy sauce, Shaoxing cooking wine, and some chili oil or chili crisp. Yes. That's the stuff. Yeah. What about you? How do you how do you use chili oil? Any anything stir fried, like I love it in yakisoba. Like I will mm-hmm. always throw some in there. Like in a dipping sauce for for dumplings, like it's a classic yes. with with uh, Chinese black vinegar. I recently like if you're ordering chili flakes from the Mala market, order their their uh Kang vinegar also because it is so much better than than black vinegar really? that I that I've bought like the cheap stuff. Oh, yeah, cool. which which like okay. normally I find like the cheap version of of any condiment is fine for me, but this makes a big difference. So like that mixed with chili oil and and optionally soy sauce is like the ultimate dumpling dipping sauce. Like I will put it in a salad dressing. A classic Tots D teenager of the show December lunch uh, is fried eggs over rice uh, with soy sauce and homemade chili oil. Mm. Uh, it goes in uh, like a uh, smacked cucumbers. Yes. Absolutely. Yes. Um, oh, and I wanted to mention a um, friend of the show, Xiao uh, Ching Chow, um, her book, Chinese Soul Food, has um, a recipe for wontons and chili oil that uh, I started making last year and have made like a dozen times since then and uh, is so oh good. It's God. got both chili oil and uh, Sichuanese chili bean paste, like in combined in whatever ratio you like, which is just fantastic. Is it like a pork wonton or pork and shrimp? I believe it is, a, it is a ground chicken wonton. Although Ooh. I usually substitute ground pork because that's what I have on hand, but it would be great with ground chicken. Oh, man. Okay. I would definitely recommend if you have not already made this recipe, it's real good. Get the book, Chinese Soul Food. So that's Shaoxing Chow's recipe from Chinese Soul Food. Yeah. Check it out. All right. So my first encounter, of course, with chili oil was through Vietnamese food and then Italian food. Your first encounter was through like Chinese chili oil meets like chili con carne. Um, But our guest today is going to talk with us about chili oil from a whole different direction, which I don't know much about. And I'm really excited to learn more. Our guest today is Bryant Terry, who is going to be talking with us about chili oil in the African-American tradition. This episode is brought to you by Town Place Suites by Marriott. Whether you're traveling for work, need a place to stay while your home is being remodeled, or maybe you're just enjoying a relaxing week away, well, Town Place Suites by Marriott has all the comforts of home. Yeah, so they've got a full kitchen. Uh, they've got, you can borrow appliances. Like if you want a blender or a slow cooker while you're traveling, you can borrow it. No charge. <laughs> uh-huh. So like you could invite your friends or your coworkers over for like a post-meeting drink. You can bring your pet 
totally allowed. Oh, I love this. Oh, I see. They even have special pet items you can use. And they have the built-in alpha closet system. Nothing makes me happier (laughs) when I am traveling and I have like a place to put away my clothes. Mm -hmm. Molly has seen what happens when I don't have a place to put away my clothes. Nobody wants to see that. Nobody, nobody. Yeah, so like a whole closet system where I can really like unpack for reals. I am down. Well, this is made for you then. And this is Town Place Suites by Marriott. Town Place Suites by Marriott has all the amenities you need to feel at home during your stay. Find the comforts of home at Town Place Suites. Go there with Marriott Bonvoy. Ophthalmologist Dr. Strauss has seen firsthand how the metaverse is helping surgeons practice the procedures to treat cataracts. Cataracts are the primary cause of avoidable blindness. He works with a virtual reality training platform developed by Fundamental VR and Orbis International to help surgeons develop the muscle memory they need. The result? More confident, capable surgeons. And even more importantly, patients who can see. Explore more stories like Dr. Strauss's at meta.com slash metaverseimpact. We are thrilled to have Bryant on the show today. I am sure almost all of our listeners have heard of his wide-ranging work. He's made an impact in so many areas of the food world. I can't even begin to sum it all up into a tidy little bio. Matthew, what, what are a few things he's done? Okay, so he is a James Beard Award winner. He's an NAACP Image Award winner. He's a chef, educator, author. Uh, He's an activist, and he believes in creating a healthy, just, and sustainable food system. He is the editor-in-chief of Four Color Books, which is an imprint of Penguin Random House. Maybe you've heard of it, and 10 Speed Press. And he is the co-principal and innovation director of ZenMe, a creative studio that he founded. That's right. And I think this is really cool. For the past several years, he's been the chef-in-residence at the Museum of of the African diaspora in San Francisco. Yeah. So there he creates public programming at the intersection of food and farming and activism and culture and the African diaspora. What we're most excited about today, though, is Bryant's brand new book, Black Food, which has the most gorgeous cover, not to mention the entire interior. He's also the author of Vegetable Kingdom, Afro-Vegan, Vegan Soul Kitchen, The Inspired Vegan, and Grub. Yep. Bryant Terry, thank you so much for joining us today. You know, we are fans of, of all of your books, but this one is really special. Thank you. I really appreciate that. Molly and I have been talking all about chili oil, but the type that we're most familiar with is Chinese and East Asian chili oil. Bryant, could you please tell us more about chili oil or piri piri oil in the context of foods of the African diaspora and sub-Saharan Africa? Sure. In many West and Central African countries, uh, some type of pepper sauce or chili oil is it's just essential. You see it on all tables. And, you know, it's interesting because growing up in the South, there was a similar kind of culture around having some hot pepper vinegar or some type of fermented chili um, sauce on the table that you use to add some heat and acid to the dishes. And so uh, it's so central to a lot of the cooking that um, we kind of imagine or, you know, see in real life throughout the African diaspora. And the thing about chilies is they actually aren't indigenous to Africa, but they have just made themselves so indispensable to um, Western Central African cooking. And, you know, I 
I would say if there was one cuisine that has shaped my culinary approach more than others, it's Louisiana, kind of New Orleans cooking. And, you know, going to college in New Orleans is just like that's where my kind of love of heat really kicked in because, you know, so many of the dishes that you have in New Orleans are really spicy. Yeah. When I was putting together uh, black food, when we were putting together the chapters, I was very clear that after the the essays, I wanted to have these curated menus. And, 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 you know, as things unfolded and we have to, you know, we were running out of space and time and things. And it didn't play out exactly the way that I wanted to. But one thing that I was attempting to do is, you know, have like a curated menu and every menu would start with some type of chili oil or chili vinegar. And you see this in the uh, Motherland chapter, which actually starts with my um, Pili Pili oil. Yes, I have the book open to that page right now. And I, and I made the recipe and it's extremely delicious. I've been like putting it on everything. Oh, so you did make it? Yes. <laughs> well, yeah. So, you know, with these, uh, the Pili Pili oil, it's just kind of one of those oils that you see or Pili Pili or Pity Pity, depending on, um, you know, who said it. So it's a Swahili mm-hmm. name for chilies. You see it throughout Sub-Saharan Africa. Uh, bird-sized chilies are typically used, but, you know, you can use whatever chilies on hand. It was one of those things where I just felt like, it's great for people to experience these different like flavor profiles and um, just see the connections because you see, you know, chilies used in um, sub-Saharan African cooking. You see it in the Caribbean and you definitely see it in the American South. So it's one of those, you know, fruits that I feel like are kind of emblematic of African diasporic cooking. But Molly and I were talking uh, uh, before you got here that one of the cuisines that I know best is Japanese cooking. And in Japanese, uh, a common word for spicy is uh, piti or piti kata. And I think chilies came to Japan through Portugal, but the word clearly seems to be related to the Swahili word, and I don't know how that happened, but it's fascinating to me. I love that. I had no idea. Thanks for um, sharing that information with me, Matthew. <laughs> you bet. So I noticed that it has fresh herbs in addition to the chilies. Will you tell us about what the herbs bring to it and then how you use that particular oil in your kitchen? Sure. Well, the thing about, um, you know, pili pili, piti piti oils or, you know, anything, any kind of hot sauces, I mean, there probably are endless variations that, you know, you have variations by country and then I'm sure by region and ethnic group and neighborhood and home. And so I, I try not to get too caught up in these ideas of, you know, purity and like, but what's the, the most perfect pili pili oil to share? And I think as long as those basic ingredients are there, I always strive to make food kind of, you know, in the ethos that I've always been making them, which is drawing on local seasonal ingredients. And so when I was testing that recipe, you know, we were growing chilies at home. We have um, three 100 square foot raised beds at our home um, in which we're growing food. And in our backyard garden, we had like, you know, our tomatoes and chilies and a lot of fresh herbs. And so I just decided to experiment with using some fresh herbs. And I just wanted to brighten it up a little bit, you know, um, give it some kind of herbaceousness and just have a little more complexity to the flavor. I tested it a number of times, some without the herbs, some with herbs. And I just found that um, it was much more uh, robust and exciting with the fresh herbs in there. And then how do you like to use it in your kitchen? Uh, I I use it on everything. Yeah. (laughs) I mean, it's one of those things where for me, because I like heat so much and it's always a, a challenge. Um, balancing my adoration of heat and my seven and 10 years old uh, evolving palate and <laughs> their yes. inability to take the, the, the kind of heat that I can. But yeah, I use that chili oil, you know, if I'm making a savory breakfast, I might use it. We've been having uh, jolk, which is uh, a Chinese 
you can have it for breakfast, lunch, or dinner, but it's uh, kind of a rice porridge that's cooked until the rice is just falling apart. And then you top it with a number of, you know, w- whatever kind of additions you might have, whether it's peanuts or some roasted tofu, um, some fermented greens, and whatever I'm adding to my joke, I'm going to drizzle it with some chili oil. So that's probably the most, uh, <laughs> the way that I've been using that um, pili pili oil most often is having my um, morning joke just to kind of get my body warmed up before our summer day. Oh, I'm so I'm so glad you mentioned that. We had um, Hetty McKinnon on a few months ago to talk about joke. We did a, a whole episode on that. She's wonderful. Yeah. Wait, I had a question about your garden. So what kinds of chilies are you growing in there? Wow. Uh, so we definitely have some birdside chilies. We have some jalapenos. We have a number of chilies that I don't even know the name of them. <laughs> yes. And, you know, um, it was I just want to shout out Spiral Gardens, which is its food security project in Berkeley. And they have been doing some amazing work for, I don't know, maybe two decades now. Um, my friend Don Conscient Hunter, who's the owner, I had invited her to come over and just really help me kind of revitalize the garden last spring. So we um, identified some chilies that I definitely wanted to have in there. But then she just brought a number of chilies that she said, you need to have these in here. So uh, we have a diversity of chilies and it's just fun playing around with them. And, you know, the thing about having the, the gardens at home, that was one of the ways that we cultivated, I guess, a love of, well, before a love of kind of helping our our kids understand the seat to table cycle experientially. Mm-hmm. I think our young oldest daughter was three when we had um, given her a small raised bed that we had typically used for a lot of fresh herbs. And we were just like, okay, well, we're going to give you a little portion of this and that's your garden. And so we let her pick out some things that she wanted to grow and she had to be in charge of watering them and, and weeding it. Oh my gosh. I love that you gave her her own little raised bed. Yeah, me too. God, Oh, that's fantastic. I'm inspired. A lot of parents are like, well, how do you get your kids, you know, how do you help them get excited about eating vegetables? And so I tell them that as much as you can get them involved with the cooking process, um, Mm -hmm. that is just a great start. So we would have a little bench that we put in the kitchen floor. We would go out to the um, raised bed in our front yard with her where we have a lot of our dark leafy greens and we'd have Mm -hmm. her help us um, harvest them. And then we bring back her little bowl with the greens. And then we have another one with um, it was a kind of a, a metal bowl with water. And then we had another metal bowl with a colander. So she would take her greens. She would vigorously move them around in the um, bowl with the water and lift them up in the colander and she had her own little assembly line and you know when she was involved in helping to prepare it she wanted to make it she felt invested she's like yeah I harvested it and I cleaned them of course I'm going to try Mm -hmm. them and we really credit um, that early work with her with her um, just very adventuresome diverse palate unlike our second one who just likes (laughs) french fries and pasta (laughs) yeah (laughs) I think it's like a requirement you have to have one of each you know you're not allowed to have two kids with adventurous palettes. Tis true. Yes, and I imagine like any any task where you can get a kid to uh, splash water all over, that's going to get them on board with anything, I feel like. For sure. But let me tell you the origins of that. When I founded the um, NGO Be Healthy, which is a uh, food justice organization that I started in New York City back in 2001, we, you know, I, I knew that 
the population of young people we were working with, the last thing we needed to do was bring them to a project where we were just lecturing them. They were mm-hmm. coming from the lower economic strata of New York City, living in communities where they were going to these underfunded, segregated schools, yeah. you know, along with a range of material conditions that weren't were unfavorable. And because they lived in uh, communities that suffered from food apartheid, they had been so disconnected mm-hmm. from a lot of fresh, healthy affordable and culturally appropriate food. And and what we found was that when we would take these kids to rural farms and community gardens and urban farms or food co-ops, and, you know, we really had them engage in the experience around the seat to table cycle. Well, if they harvested something, something at this farm that we went to, when we brought them back to the door where we were based, of course they wanted to cook it because they're like, yeah, I pulled this out of the ground. So I want to yeah. make this dish. And if they made some, you know, roasted beet salad with quinoa, on goat cheese, it might have been the most foreign thing to them, but because they made yeah. it, they wanted to try it. And the more that they tried different things, the more that it opened up their palates. I've been kind of using that philosophy that we developed with uh, the young people we work with um, and, and just, you know, doubling down with my children and, and helping them explore the diversity of the vegetable kingdom and beyond. Oh, I love this. Oh, that's fantastic. I think this is a good, a good moment to to look more broadly at what this book does. And I was struck when I uh, first got to look at it by the degree to which it's really a celebration of Black culture as much as it is a cookbook. You have essays and recipes from such a broad variety of contributors. So I I wondered if you could tell us a little bit about how the book came about and what you wanted this to be as separate from, from the books you've done before and the projects you've done before. Sure, that's a great question. And in order for me to talk about the origins of Black food, I have to talk about my residency. I've been chef in residence at the Museum of the African Diaspora in San Francisco since 2015. Uh, you know, from the, the moment that we started the programming there, I knew that we were doing something special. You know, I always talk about the fact that our first program, Black Women, Food and Power, where we brought together some scholars and activists and farmers. Who do we have? It was Psyche Williams Forsum, who's one of the foremost scholars around Black food. Uh, Nicole Taylor, uh, New York and Georgia-based author mm-hmm. and um, journalist. Carolyn Randall Williams, who's a, an author and a poet. Gail Myers, who is a scholar and a farmer and an activist. So we had brilliant women talking about the historical and the contemporary role of Black women in the production and distribution and consumption of food and food knowledge, because there are a number of scholars there. And the fact that we had people who flew in from the East Coast for a two-hour program at our tiny, our small but mighty museum in San Francisco. <laughs> I knew we were on to something and I always jokingly say there was, I, I saw that there was a literal hunger for this type of programming, pun intended. This is 2015. We weren't, we didn't have the infrastructure to do virtual programming, you know, and the ethos mm-hmm. at the museum was kind of like, yeah, come here, have an experience. And if you miss it, then come to the next program. But I had always mm-hmm. keep in, been keeping it in the back of my mind, just this desire to share this brilliant and thought-provoking and cutting-edge programming that we were doing at the museum with the world. And, and just to be clear, back then, this was, this was revolutionary. Yeah. I, don't, I don't know if there was any museum with a chef-in-residence program. And so immediately as the word got out, we would get you know messages, like at least half a dozen messages every week from institutions around the world, like, hey, we read about this program. We're very interested, if not full-on creating a chef-in-residence program, at least seriously thinking about how they could include more programming around health and food and farming issues. Mm -hmm. And um, to this day, you know, we can continue to get um, queries about that. But all that to say, 
you know, I just felt like it'd be great to share a lot of the the brilliant programming that we have been doing. And so fast forward to 2020, following the the kind of uprisings after the murders of Breonna Taylor and George Floyd. And then, you know, after that, you know, because we were dealing with this national racial reckoning. But along with that, there was a revelation of a lot of racism within food media and some of the legacy food, um, you know, food media um, yeah. corporations not supporting their BIPOC employees and, you know, some instances of just blatant racism. And so I felt like this was the moment, like this was a time that this book needed to come to the world. And I wanted to share a quote with you that I sent to the over 100 potential contributors to the book. Yeah, please. So it reads, uh, when I think about black food, I keep coming back to Toni Morrison's quote, quote, the function of racism is distraction. It keeps you explaining over and over again your reason for being, end quote. While this book will acknowledge the historical and contemporary ways in which our people have been marginalized, exploited, and erased, the main focus of this project is our agency, creation, and empowerment. What emerges when we aren't distracted by racism? How are we empowered? What are the ways our humanity is displayed? What are we curious about? What brings us joy? And I really wanted the book to have that energy. And to be clear, Toni Morrison wrote this book, or she edited a book in the 70s called The Black Book. And it was this kind of encyclopedic look at Black history and culture from like the 17th century up into the mid 20th century. And I was deeply inspired by that book. So I wanted to have something that moved beyond just being a cookbook, but really was just a celebration of Black history, Black culture, written through the lens of Black people. And and, and really, I saw this as a conversation that we were having with each other with without concern for the white gaze. And we're inviting the world the world in. And I feel like um, we, we did our job. We did it. This book feels joyful to me, like without, you know, at any point, like shying away from from addressing real intense issues like there is there is just like an undercurrent of joy throughout it. I noticed that the book kicks off with a playlist, not just like a playlist of like, you know, five or ten songs, but an incredibly diverse roster of artists with like songs for like, you know, different moods and, uh, you know, different uh, themes that come in and out throughout the book. How did you go about choosing the music to include? Because it seems like for you, just like for me, like you can't separate food and music. Well, that's true. <laughs> I mean, they're, they're inseparable for me. Coming from a musical family, a family of artists, whenever we had gatherings around food, music was present. You know, my grandfather, uh, Edward Bryant Sr., uh, started this uh, traveling gospel quartet, Eddie Bryan and the Four Stars of Harmony. I love that name. <laughs> That's so good. <laughs> I love that name, too. <laughs> but yeah, they were the first black group to perform on radio in Memphis, um, gospel radio. They traveled throughout the South. And because of that, all of my mom and her siblings were musical. Um, you know, from her, who sings in the church choir, to my Uncle Don, who he's in his 70s. And he just got a Grammy nomination uh, last year for uh, Best traditional blues album that's amazing his last oh album. My God. <laughs> so yeah music has just always been a part of our family's culture and you know in terms of a political project i'm very clear that our industrialized food system has transformed food into this commodity which is on one side and then on the other side there's all the things that have traditionally been so integral to the way that we grow food and, and cook it and eat it like music and art and culture and community and i really see my body of work trying to bridge that chasm 
because I'm sure you guys know this isn't the first time I've done this. Like, you know, I include music in every one of my um, books. You know, the thing about the the playlist and the suggested soundtracks, it's really a painstaking process. At some point, there's going to be some graduate student who is... um, studying my work and then they're gonna like really analyze the playlist and they're gonna crack the code because <laughs> I, i'll put it like this back you know in in my um youthful days i was i was um smoking a lot of fresh herbs <laughs> and just hours pouring over just how to put together the perfect playlist and i really saw it as like another text yeah if you look at the the, the pr- progression of songs or just the way that i pair them it it there there's so much to it so with this one well, let me tell you an interesting story. Please. And, and this is connected to both the soundtrack and the cover. So I put the playlist together and then I send it out to a couple of colleagues, Nicole Taylor, uh, Hawa Hassan, who's a cookbook author, mm-hmm. and a couple of other people. Yep. And I was like, hey, you know, this is the playlist for Black Food. Can you take a listen and, and just let me know how does it make you feel? Like, give me some feedback. And so Nicole contacted me and she was like, you know, I love the playlist, but let me tell you, I feel like it's a playlist for people of our generation, people who are in their like, you know, mid 40s but mm-hmm. I don't feel like my assistant who's in her 20s would look at this playlist and, and and see herself in it or see music that reflects her taste. So I was like, okay, great. And I took like a week just really researching a lot of the newer artists. And there's some like TikTok people that I follow who are, you know, they curate beautiful music. And so I, I studied and learned about all these just dope new artists. And so I transformed the playlist and I feel like now it does, you know, it speaks to the older generation. It speaks to my generation. And I do feel like it can speak to generation Zers as well. But let me tell you how this connects to the cover. If you look, you know, inside the book, there is that, um, I call it Afro still life, kind of reclaiming still life from, um, <laughs> from you know, European art. But there's the, the image, which is right after the recipe list, which is, you know, like the, the bananas on the colander and mm-hmm. the cutting board with the greens uh, displayed by them. That was originally mm-hmm. going to be the cover of Black Food. Uh-huh. But after having this conversation with Nicole, I saw that cover through a different lens and I, I felt like the cover was, I felt like if we use this, it was too academic. It was like me trying to force this thesis on the potential buyer or reader of the book. You know, I, I have to encapsulate exactly what this book is about. And I felt like it was too literal. And that's where we, we pivoted to, which what was originally the idea for the cover, which was using a typeface cover. And I talked uh-huh. to my um, art director, George McCallman, and I was so scared because George is like, he's, he could be like intense. I was like, oh my God, got to go. <laughs> back to him <laughs> we had all these mock-ups and i was like look george i need a cover that if a college student was in a bookstore and they saw this across mm-hmm. the room they'd run over just to open this book like holy moly what is going on and that's the cover that we um created <laughs> oh man i am so glad you told that story because this book the experience of this book would be so different with that image on the cover. Listening to you talk about how this book grew out of these programs that you were working on at the Museum of the African Diaspora, the cover now conveys this idea, this like much bigger idea of the way that food is interwoven with art and design and history and culture. Oh, anyway, good job. Yeah, no, I feel like it jumps, it jumps off the shelf now. If you look at the color palette on the um, cover, it actually corresponds with the color palette that we, every chapter has its own color palette. And so those colors are what we drew from the actual chapters in the book. 
Oh man. Okay. I love this. Cause what I wanted, I wanted to ask you more about the design of the book and, and especially about how you chose the artists whose work is included. Sure. Well, first of all, you know, I talk about this being my book. Obviously my name is on the cover for obvious reasons. This isn't my book. This is a collective of people that I brought together to, to bird this book. And it was literally, you know, the funny thing is I always talk about this being like a pandemic book, my pandemic baby. And then someone because it, we put the book together in nine months and then I forgot who it was, but they they kind of reminded me like, you know, that's the gestation period. This is really your pandemic baby. And I was like, holy <laughs> moly. <laughs> but one of the first things I did when we found out we we're getting the book um, deal is I called Oriana Corin, who is the photographer. And I said, look, mm-hmm. I'm doing a new book. I think you have to f- to shoot it. And I'll tell you what made me feel like they would be perfect for this book. Uh, Oriana Corin and Jillian Knox, who's a food and prop stylist, they did the package for food and wine back in 2019, I believe. It was this whole mm-hmm. package around the African diaspora and they shot it. And I love the storytelling that they did in that. And I was very clear that I wanted that level of story telling in the food photography. So anyway, after talking to Oriana, I put together what I call my kitchen cabinet. And I called up my friend Therese Nelson, who is this um, New Jersey-based chef and storyteller, Scott Alvis Barton, who is a chef and professor at the NYU Food Studies Program, and Dara Cooper, who is a national food justice leader. And I really wanted to just ensure that, you know, they helped me to make this book everything that it could be, that it's accountable to community, and that it was, as as, as I said to them, is the, the blackity, the most black black book that we could put together. Yeah. <laughs> and so I had a lot of ideas about people I wanted to be in here. And, and, and but there are people that I didn't know needed to be in this book. And there are people that I knew about their work, but I didn't know them. So they were great at helping me to build out the uh, contributors. But, you know, operating out of a museum, I was very clear that we had to have an art component in the book. And I wanted to, and so I licensed in some cases or um, literally um, had people create original pieces that encapsulates the energy, the content of the, you know, the rest of the chapter. Because I really wanted this book to feel like, not just a cookbook, not just an anthology where you're getting fed intellectually, but I also want it to feel like an art book. Like I want people to be able to, you know, have this on their coffee table and feel like they could just spend hours, you know, kind of absorbing the visuals. And uh, I feel like we, we we did a great job. Yes, that is yeah. an understatement. Black Food Stories, Art and Recipes from Across the African Diaspora is out now and available everywhere books are sold. Congratulations, Bryant. It is an incredible book and it's been great to have you on Spelled Milk. Matthew and Molly, thank you so much for having me on. Appreciate you guys and can't wait for another conversation. Thank you. That was awesome. That conversation went so many places beyond chili oil, and I love. This is my it. favorite. Like I, I'm always afraid. Like when we have a guest on, which which like we're still, I think, like not very good at doing yet. <laughs> Although <laughs> I mean, people have called us like the Dan we're, Rather we're of, trying. of podcasting. <laughs> like you know, we, we'll write questions. And I'm, I'm always afraid that like we'll just kind of sound like we're reading our questions, and the guest will answer the question, and then we'll move on to the next question, and everyone. Yeah, will you've be given like, away all of our secrets. You're right, Matthew. but but I'm so like like. Bryant knows how this works and is like, you know, I'm going to talk about some interesting stuff that you didn't ask me. And we are here for that. Oh, thank you again, Bryant. And oh, you know what? One thing that I didn't really, uh, you know, point up in the interview, but that really struck me was that 
his chili oil, the the pili pili oil, uses fresh chilies. Yes, uses I bird's eye chilies. So interesting. Yeah. So you like throw in yeah. some whole like you know Thai bird's eye chilies and some smoked paprika, which is a dynamite combination, and then along with fresh herbs and olive oil. So it is a totally different style of chili oil than what we've been talking about, but is also good on everything. So cool. Okay, should we move on to segments? Sure. All right, it's time for spilled mail. Number one, did you know that you can send us mail and we'll call it spilled mail? And if you send us uh, like a question that you would like us to answer on the show, we just might do that. So uh, you can email us at contact at spilledmilkpodcast.com and uh, send us your questions. For today, we've got listener Anne. Here's what listener Anne sent us. Cooking disasters. Was there one dish or recipe you destroyed so thoroughly it sticks in your memory? Any catastrophic failures you still grimace at? I have one. Okay. The biggest cooking disaster I ever pulled was I had been working on an article, I think, about French fries. And I'm like, I'm going to make homemade French fries. And I did. And they were really tasty. But this was like, you know, like wife of the show, Lori, was at work. And I was like, you know, making French fries by myself and eating them at home by myself, which was really cool. thing to do because I was a cool guy. And then I was like, you know, hey, I made these homemade French fries. They were really good. I want to make some for you. She was pregnant at the time. I tried to recreate what I had done and the oil, like I put too much oil in the pot or I overheated it or didn't dry the potatoes enough or something. It bubbled right over the side of the pot onto the burner. (gasps) And like, you know, there were like a three foot column of flames in the in the middle of the kitchen. <laughs> Luckily, we had a fire extinguisher, and fire extinguishers work. Um, and so I uh, I put out the fire and uh, have not made fries since then, and probably won't. Wow. Okay. That reminds me. I need to check and see if if my fire extinguisher is still like current. Oh yeah, there's you know a PSA from spilled to... milk. Don't let your fire expire. <laughs> No, but really, there are places out there that sell fire extinguishers, and and you should have yours checked every now and then Mm -hmm. if you haven't used it in years and years and years. You should definitely take it somewhere and have it checked. Anyway, okay, my biggest cooking disaster, this was definitely, okay, this is sometime between 2006 and like 2010. Have you ever heard of like the Italian technique of like pork cooked in milk? Yeah. Okay, so I've only attempted it once, have not attempted it again. I'm pretty sure I used the recipe from Molly Stevens' All About Braising, Mm -hmm. which is to this day one of my very favorite cookbooks. And what I'm about to say has nothing to do with the cookbook and everything to do with my stove, which is that. So I had an electric stove then. I still have an electric stove now. And electric stoves just... I cannot emphasize enough, no matter what your stove is, like if the recipe says like put it over medium high heat or high heat or whatever, like know your own stove, pay attention to your own stove. It doesn't matter what the cookbook says. Your stove is your stove. Oh, my stove is my stove. Yeah. This pork loin was supposed to be seared before it's braised, right? Because that's how braising works. I was supposed, it was a pork loin. So I had shelled out a chunk of money on this. Uh, It was all tied up neatly with butcher twine. I think I had like studded it with garlic slivers Mm -hmm. and whatever the heck I was supposed to do. And then I was supposed to get my pan really hot and sear it on all sides before adding the milk and whatever. Well, uh, it said specifically to sear for like um, three minutes per side or whatever. Okay. So I turned my stove onto high, which I think is what the recipe told me to do. And 
I completely blackened, Mm -hmm. like turned to carbon that was flaking off two sides of the pork loin before I realized what what I had done. You would think I would figure it out after one side, but it actually (laughs) took me two sides because of the way that I had rotated it. Sure. You were hiding your shame unknowingly. I was hiding my shame. So I tried to scrape off the carbon. I was home alone as well. These things have to have to have to happen when you're home alone. Uh, One time when I I was home alone, I put some like aftershave on my face and then I went in the mirror. (laughs) I I scraped off as much of the carbonized pork as I could and then then turned the heat down, continued searing it. But meanwhile, I'd gotten myself so freaked out and so like mistrustful of my own judgment that then I proceeded to I proceeded with the recipe, but I, I don't even know what went wrong. When it was over, I still I had pork that was kind of nicely seared on two of the four sides of the square pork loin now. But the inside was raw and I had a whole bunch of milk chunks in the pan. Oh. It was a very expensive mistake. And all this to say, I think if I had just trusted my own judgment and like put my stove on medium high instead of high and just checked the sear of the beef rather than setting a timer and walking away from it, this wouldn't have happened. Yeah, I think, I mean, for one thing, I think like on an electric stove, most of the time, like high on an electric stove is higher than high on a gas stove unless it's like a fancy ass commercial-ish gas stove. It's like the surface of the sun. It is a lot like that. Yeah, I don't vacation there anymore. I don't use the high setting on my stove unless I am boiling water mm-hmm. or if I am stir frying yep. and I'm literally standing exactly. right same, there same on top here. of the stove. Okay. Thanks for the question, All right. listener Thank Anne. you. Thank you, listener Anne. Really fun to revisit those utter disasters. The home alone disasters. But then then uh, Joe Pesci and Daniel Stern came over and um, I hit and them we with had paint a lot cans. Of fun. Now it's time for now. <laughs> now. Now it's time for now, but wow. And it's my turn to now, but wow. And this is, uh, I'm, I'm, I think I've done a lot of, of YA novels recently, and why not? Uh, this one's called How Moon Fuentes Fell in Love with the Universe by Raquel Vasquez Gilliland. What a great title. Yeah, it's, it's good. And I really enjoyed the book. So it is about Moon Fuentes, who has kind of always lived in the shadow of her beautiful and ultra-religious sister. And then the premise of the book is they have to spend the summer together on tour with like a tour of social media influencers. And like, if you're if you're like, okay, I'm getting off this train at this point, I would too. But you do not have to know or care about social media influencers to enjoy the book whatsoever. I don't, but I loved the book. So um, Moon is a great character, but an even better character is the love interest, Santiago, who is like, you know, this type of like, you know, gruff hero, man of few words. Um, He's like a person with a disability and he only opens his mouth to tell Moon how great she is or to tell off people who desperately deserve to be told off. I loved Santiago. Uh, I loved Moon. Uh, this is this is a terrific book, and I recommend it. Fantastic. So that's How Moon Fuentes Fell in Love with the Universe yep. by Raquel Vasquez Gilliland. Our producer is Abby Circatella. Indeed. And you can rate and review us wherever you get your podcasts. And, and as we and all the other podcasts say, it really helps when you rate and review us. Yeah, we don't know how it helps, but it really does. There's an algorithm mm-hmm. involved you know, it, it really like juices up our foot juice. <laughs> uh, okay. And uh, uh, if you want to talk about foot juice with other people, uh, go to Reddit. <laughs> 
Reddit. I bet there's a lot of that going on on Reddit. Uh, but if you want to talk about our show, that's reddit.com slash r slash everything spilled milk. Poor Bryant Terry, who had the misfortune to be on an episode in which I introduced the phrase foot juice. Yes. So sorry, Bryant Terry. Thank you for putting up with us. This, this legendary author and activist, we're going to like have to send him a link to our show. He's like, what the fuck did I do? I'm really What did I agree to? Thank you, thank you so much to Bryant Terry for being a guest on the show. We would love to have him back. Although after he listens to the show, that seems unlikely. Uh, and uh, thank you for listening to Spilled Milk. Unlike unlike Santiago in, uh, in How Moon Fuentes Fell in Love with the Universe, we'll open our mouths for any reason to say just literally anything that comes to mind. I'm Molly Weisenberg. <laughs> and I'm Matthew Amsterberg. So when I said that was right, it was completely wrong. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.